Well, if you have your Bibles, would you turn to Psalm 75? Not only does Psalm 75 numerically follow Psalm 74, but it's actually an answer to Psalm 74. Psalm 74 was the cries to the Lord, uh, how long, Lord, have you forgotten us? And that was in the midst of trials uh, from wicked men uh, facing persecution that left the psalmist asking the Lord, where are you? And Psalm 75 is really the answer to this, and not so much in giving an answer where the Lord uh, brings destruction on the wicked, but actually how we should think through things when we're in that situation of facing persecution or whatever the trial may be. And it's this, here's the answer, the Lord's going to accomplish His will in His time. And we need to trust that it is always right and righteous and good. And that becomes the message of Psalm 75. And that's a hard message to take in because when we're praying, we want something to take place right away. Or when we're in the heat of the moment of something, we want the Lord to just work it right out. But what we learn from the psalmist and elsewhere in the the pages of Scripture is actually the Lord's going to work it out in His time and that's better than your time. It's better than our time. And so let us hear Psalm 75. Beginning in verse 1. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. Let me just pause. Verses, uh, verse 2 through verse 5 is the Lord speaking. So verse 1 is the psalmist. Now, verse 2 through 5, this is the Lord speaking. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with a haughty neck. Verse 6 returns to the psalmist. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. This is the word of the Lord. He begins, as we see in verse 1, with the first section, which is praise to the Lord. And the second section of it is the, the reflection that the Lord will judge, not only from the Lord's own words, but then from the psalmist interpreting the words of the Lord. And that takes place all the way verses 2 through 8, and then verses 9 through 10 is the response and the confidence that we have that the righteous one shall be anointed and lifted up. 
And so it begins with praise to the Lord in verse 1. We see this often. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. And that word thanks is another way of saying praise. We praise you or we bless your name. We have it translated as thanks, but think of it in the same way as praise. (coughs) Excuse me. And why? It tells us why we give thanks, why we give praise. It gives us two reasons. For your name is near, is the first one. And the second reason is we recount your wondrous deeds. And the idea is that thinking back upon what God has done leads to giving thanks. But the first point is we give thanks for your name is near. So think of this as the presence of God. The nearness of God with his people is a means of praise for the psalmist. You think of throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament, a reoccurring theme is God's presence with his people. And it's a special presence because, as we have seen so many times, the presence of God was lost in the fall. But yet God at times makes a special promise known to his people that he will be with them. To Abraham, I will be with you. To Jacob, I will be with you. To Joseph, I will be with you. To Moses, I will be with you. To Joshua, he says that he will be with Joshua. In fact, we read these words in Joshua 1.9 as the transition from Moses to Joshua is taking place. The Lord says to him, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That nearness, that presence of God was the abiding comfort for Joshua to move him forward. And so when we think about the nearness of God, think of it in this sense that we see God telling his people, I will be with you. And this becomes a means of praise for the psalmist. But this is also a means of praise for us. You think of what Jesus says when he commands his disciples to go out. What does Jesus promise his disciples? He says this, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We sometimes forget what Jesus says after he gives the command to go into all nations, making disciples and baptizing them. We forget what he says before that, where he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he says then, after a command, stating his power, I am with you. Do we lack anything to praise God for? If, if you are in Christ, the Spirit of God dwells in you, and Christ dwells with you by His Spirit, the Father dwells with you by the Spirit, the triune God dwells with the believer. And this is a means of thanks and praise. If we can't think of anything to praise the Lord for, we can praise the Lord that He is with His people. And there's a second thing that he says we give thanks for. He says we recount your wondrous deeds. What is that? Typically, when the psalmist speaks of the wondrous deeds of the Lord, it's it's in reference to creation, 
that God brought forth all that exists from nothing in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It also oftentimes refers to acts of deliverance that God has brought about. And because it's not specified, because it's not qualified by any specific event, I think it's safe to assume that you can think of any of those points of deliverance in which the Lord has rescued his people that the psalmist would be referring to, that the psalmist could be certainly referring to creation. But there's another aspect about this that really comes out clearly in verse 3, and that is this, the wondrous deeds of the Lord is his daily providence over us. And so you can think of the miraculous and the supernatural of bringing forth something out of nothing in creation. You can think of his deliverance of splitting the Red Sea and the children of Israel walking through that. You can think of Noah being set aside in the ark and the door of the ark being closed by God himself. You can think of all the ways in which God has delivered his people. And that would be certainly true and praiseworthy and should lead us to confidence and praise of God. But there's also the reality that just daily God's providential hand is upon us, keeping us, holding us together. So as we think about this, we give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near the presence of God. And we recount your wondrous deeds. This is reflecting upon what God has done. Do we lack anything to praise God for? No, in in essence, your very presence here right now as a follower of Christ means that our heart is perpetually in praise. And I want you to notice the words we recount. What does that mean? We think about these things. We think about these things. So often when we're reading through the scriptures and we see how God has delivered Israel or how Christ was with his people, you read the book of Acts and how many times Paul was rescued. That's our history. That's what God has done amongst our people, the children of God among whom we are part of. That we can look back and say, how glorious are you, God, that you rescued Paul from the hand of the Jews. How amazing, God, that you rescued Noah when the whole earth was wiped out. You are an amazing God that does wondrous works, wondrous deeds, and we give you thanks. Those are things that we can give thanks for. And ultimately, may we never cease to praise the Lord for the salvation and deliverance that we have, the ultimate deliverance that we have in Jesus Christ. Those, all of those other things led to the point that we have Christ. And we have ultimate deliverance. And so as the psalmist is reflecting on this seemingly absence of God, isn't it amazing that in verse 1 he begins by saying, your presence is with us? Meaning his presence was never away. And then he shifts into this, to answer the question, how long, O Lord? In verse 2, it's this, so how long, O Lord, at the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. Let me just just review. 
In Psalm 74, verse 10, How long, O God, is the foe to scoff, is the enemy to revile your name forever? At the set time I appoint and I will judge with equity. That's how God answers that question. Look at verse 22. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which go up continually. What's the Lord's response to that? At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. That answers that question of how long, O Lord. That the Lord will execute His plan according to His own time, His own timetable, according to His eternal plan, and it will be done perfectly. It will be done with righteousness. It will be done in equity. You know, just consider for a moment how we want things done right now. Our culture is we want something right now. That's why we have microwaves. And microwaves aren't even fast enough for us to get our food done in time, is it? We want things right now. That's how we're wired. And when it comes to justice, we want it to take place right now because we're facing the consequences of injustice. But here's how we should consider this is the Lord perhaps is allowing the wicked to build up judgment against themselves. It could be that as it seems that the Lord is tarrying, when we we see Christians under persecution, we go, how long, O Lord, are these poor people going to be under persecution where they can't gather to worship you? It could be that the Lord is allowing them to build up judgments against themselves. And all the while, it's not wasted with us. But actually, while they're building up judgment, the Lord's actually building us up and transforming us into the image of Christ. And so it's not wasted time. The Lord will do it when He wants to do it. And when He wants to do it, it will be good. When we want it done... Because God doesn't do it when we want it done means it's not good. But it's good when God does it. His judgment is not how we would judge. I think that, just reflecting on this, I think there's two ways in how we would, if we were the judge. We would be vindictive or we would be weak. Vindictive or weak. God's justice is perfect. This is why Paul exhorts the church in Rome to wait upon the Lord. And these are hard words. But he says this in chapter 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's so hard. We're okay with accepting the Lord will bring His vengeance, but that whole phrase, but leave it to the Lord is hard. Because what do we want to do? We want to take things into our own hands. And let this temper how we live our lives. Let this temper 
our responses to injustices of personal offense. Think about that. To personal offenses. Let this temper how we handle them. I'm not saying that there isn't a righteous anger for over injustice. There should be. If we have the Spirit of God working in us, we want to see justice. But when we're personally offended, let, let this idea that God will bring justice, let this temper how we respond to things, that in the midst of those things that we may face, we stay faithful. Because so often when we respond to offense, our response is rarely ever perfect or holy. In fact, sometimes it's just downright sinful. Which means this, in the moment of that personal offense, and I'm just giving a by way of application of this text, of how we can live in light of this text, is this, when our response is sinful to personal offense, we have not trusted in God. But there's a double offense. We've given a poor witness to the cause of Christ. We've given a poor witness to who we say we are. In essence, we, in many ways, take the Lord's name in vain. Waiting on the Lord is actually a demonstration of trust and a means of sanctification. And it is the fruit of the Spirit to show patience when it is tried. And this leads us to prayer. It leads us to prayer. And to remind ourselves and pray, Lord, remind us that at the set time, you're going to judge. And when you do, it'll be perfect. Now, I want you to notice verse 3, how this takes place. Verse 3, when the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keeps steady its pillars. Now that phrase, and when the earth totters, sometimes it's translated melts. When the earth melts, in fact, we see this in another place in, in Exodus chapter 15. In verse 15, the same word, it says, Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. So when the earth melts away and all of its inhabitants, this is speaking of God's justice. Notice what it says. It is I who keeps steady its pillars. You know, it's interesting, off of certain passages of, of Scripture, I hear people make an argument that the earth is flat. I never hear anyone make an argument that the earth is set up on pillars. Just something to think about. It's obvious poetic language that the Lord is using here. Speaking of His upholding of all things. This is His governance over the earth. That it's set on its pillar. The earth is resting on what God has put in place and what He has put in place is, is designed and upheld by Him. This is the governance of the Lord. We see in Psalm 103, in verse 19, how this governance works. 
The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. That is a statement of God's sovereignty. And what we have to understand about God's sovereignty is this. Joel Beakey says, the providence of God stands on his sovereignty. And so as we look at this idea that God has put the the pillars in place, but he's the one who keeps them steady. That stands upon his sovereignty that he is over all things. And so what is the depth of God's providence? What is the depth of God's sovereignty? Let me just give you a, a couple of verses to think about. First, over creation itself, in Acts chapter 17 and verse 24, we read this, "...the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything." Everything comes under the the providence of God. You see, nature itself is under that providential hand of God and is expressed poetically in Psalm 147, where we read these words in, in verse 16. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. Now think about that. The waters flowing in the river is according to God's providence. And we can explain it according to natural causes, and that's true. But what's behind it is God's providential hand. And God also rules through what theologians call concurrence. And that's ruling through the actions of humans. Think of what... Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. We may have our plans, the wicked have their plans, and they're working them out according to the desires of their heart, and you're working them out according to the desires of your heart. But what's behind that is God's providence, that it's all working according to His purposes. As Abrakel says, he says this, God sustains all creatures in their particular existence so that they may move in a manner unique to themselves. That was Wilhelmus Abrakel, the Dutch theologian. In the Netherlands today, they still call him Father Brockel. Think of what he says, though, again. God sustains all creatures in their particular existence so that they move in a manner unique to themselves. So what's behind all of human action? What's behind all things that are taking place is the unfolding of God's providence that stands upon His sovereignty. And so God has designed how all things work, how all things function, and how all things will take place in human history. So, in light of that, how do we live in light of it? 
How do we live in light of it? Verses 4 and 5 give us the first clue in this. And that is that we cannot have any arrogance. Pride is extinguished by the facts that have been already stated. Our full dependency upon God is already established. The the psalm could have stopped at verse 3, but it doesn't because God in His mercy says, okay, now here's how you live in light of it, and it's this. I say to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horn, and do not lift up your horn on high, or speak with haughty neck. What does it mean to have arrogance? What does it mean to have arrogance? Let me give you an example of arrogance. When Sennacherib invades Judah, listen to the words of his messenger to Hezekiah. In verse 14 of Isaiah 36, it says this, Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. Listen to what Rabshakeh is saying, the messenger of Sennacherib. Do not let make him let you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of your own vine and one of his own fig tree, and each of you will drink the water of his own cistern. Now think about this. What is it that God promised Judah? An abundance of fruit that they would have their own fig tree, that they would have their own well to drink out of. God has promised these things to them. And here comes this pagan, wicked king that says, actually, it is I that will give you those things. So what does it mean to be arrogant? And just using that example, I think it would be this. Assuming that there's anything that we can do for our own self-sustaining. Anything that we could do to deliver ourselves. And by the way, that applies to all aspects of our life, doesn't it? That doesn't just apply to our salvation, but that applies to when I go home and I have a meal tonight for dinner, thinking I was the one who got that. That would be being boastful. Now, verse 4, it mentions the, the wicked. And so we, we, we could, we'd be right to say, well, this is addressed to the wicked. But it also says, I say to the boastful and to the wicked. In other words, we could be guilty of this very thing that we're warned against. So, how is it that we are reminded to not be arrogant, because that's our propensity to be arrogant, to be self-sustaining, to do things on our own? Well, following verse 3, it's a reminder that God's sovereign over all things, and you're not. And that should be a form of humility for us. 
He says to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Now, a horn is, is actually the horn that you would see on an ox or a bull or something to that effect, which would be a dangerous, um, fearful thing. That's, that's the whole language of the horn. It's something of power. It's something of might. It's something that brings destruction. It, it could be a, a, a weapon. And, and for, for, for an ox, the, the horn of an ox would be its pride. In fact, in Deuteronomy 33, verse 17, this is how a horn is used. And I want you to hear the language so we understand when it says, Do not lift up your horn. We get an idea of what the horn is. It says this, A firstborn bull, he has majesty, and his horns are the horns of a wild ox. So you get the picture of the horn. And with them he shall gore the peoples, all of them to the ends of the earth. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the ten thousands of Manasseh. And so we kind of get an idea of what this idea of a, of a horn is. It's, it's a thing of majesty for the person. So do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. Don't speak in pride, in other words. In some translation in the NSAB, it speaks of do not speak pridefully with your mouth. And so the whole point is this, is we have no right to live arrogantly before the Lord. And how is that arrogance oftentimes manifested? I think it's rare that the Christian will, may, will, will say things intentionally to the Lord expressing arrogance but they don't have to say things expressing their arrogance to the Lord. Our arrogance just comes out in, in how we treat God's word. And it gives us a reason, another reason why we will not, we should not be boasting, why we should not be arrogant. In verse 6 and 7, notice what it says. For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God. And so this is coming back to providence. It is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. The word for is giving the reason why we don't boast. And it's this, as if we have an advantage in life, we can't take credit for it. Because look at this boasting, it doesn't come from the east, or it doesn't come from the west, it doesn't come from the wilderness. It means it doesn't come from here. That boasting that we have, it doesn't come from here. And so it's this idea of taking credit for something that God has actually given us. Let me, let me give you this example. If one is, is born with an ear capable of, of hearing pitches... And recognizing those pitches. It's called perfect pitch. It's very rare. Very few people actually have perfect pitch. And perfect pitch is, is an amazing thing that people can have. And just imagine the person that has the perfect pitch, but then they also have a, a, a voice with tonal qualities to it that's pleasing to the ear. And that they can ascend and descend multiple octaves. And let's just say that same person, 
exercised that ear and exercised that voice. And they said, look what I've accomplished. And that's what we do say, isn't it? That's what we say. Well, it's, it's me who, who worked hard for this. Think in the area of sports. Think of the area of, of scholastic achievement. I worked hard for this. But what does God say? It doesn't come from the east, doesn't come from the west, doesn't come from the wilderness. But it is God who gives. Paul captures the thought of this really succinctly in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In verse 7, he says this, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Boy, it's, it's easy, though, to say, I, I worked for this. I got this. I deserve this. As soon as we go there, we've gone into the boasting, haven't we? As soon as we've gone there, we've lifted up our majesty. We've lifted up our horn. And we've spoken with with prideful words. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Specifically, God is the one who exalts or does not exalt. And when we receive gifts here and now, how should we hold them? With humility and knowledge that all things come from God. Otherwise, we rob God of his perfect design and plan for us, for his church, for his people. We take credit for God's glory. Calvin teaches us that it leads us to actually say, Who shall hinder me? What shall withstand me? Pride always leads to self-sufficiency and independence from God. Pride never leads us to our dependency and recognition of God. It always steers us in the wrong direction. This is why we need to know that those words, but it is God. He goes on to say what will happen in judgment. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. What's this speaking of? This is speaking of the judgment that God will bring upon the wicked. It's speaking of the fullness, the completeness, the perfection of God's judgment. They will get what they deserve. When we're in Christ, we don't get what we deserve. We get what we don't deserve. Now, I want you to hear how Revelation states this in Revelation 14.10. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath 
poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Who's the Lamb of God? Jesus. It says in the scriptures that the wicked will actually face the wrath of Jesus. They will only wish they could escape the presence of Jesus. But actually, what the scripture tells us is that eternally they will be in the presence of the Lamb. Not experiencing His grace, but Him emptying the fullness of God's wrath. That's the vengeance that's coming upon the wicked. And when you think about that, that's for anyone that does not receive Christ as Lord. Let that set in for a second. The fullness of the cup will be drained out eternally in the presence of the Lamb. That's not just for Stalin. That's for those people that we love and care for that reject Jesus as Savior. But it will be perfect justice. Remember, God judges with equity. God will judge with equity. So there's two things in how we should respond to this. There's comfort in knowing that the Lord will bring vengeance and we trust in that and it will come at the right time according to His timetable that's good. But there's also this other aspect of it that says, wow, we need to be serious about spreading the gospel. Because people are going to be facing an eternal wrath of the Lamb. What is our response? The psalmist states in verses 9 through 10 in contrast, and this shows our our response and our confidence. Verse 9, but I will declare it forever. So the word but is to show us contrast to the wicked. The wicked will experience this, but I... The psalmist is saying, I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. So whereas the wicked boast in themselves, the psalmist, the Christian, will be boasting in God. And look what the statement is in verse 10. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. And I just want to focus in on verse 10 for a second and for us to think about this. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off. We've already seen that that's God's justice coming. But I want you to notice, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Now, this is stated in your English translation in the plural. Calvin, for instance, interprets this as saying this is the corporate righteous people being lifted up by God. And that's certainly true. But actually, it's in the singular in Hebrew. And so I don't think this is speaking of the corporate group of people. I think it's speaking of the righteous one that will be lifted up. It's much like what we see 
in Hannah's prayer, which I, I think helps us interpret this passage. Let me read it to you. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Does that sound familiar? We just read that. But look what goes on with Hannah saying this. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Sound familiar? We just read that. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. We know that that's ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And so what the psalmist, I believe, is showing us, and many others take this view, is that this is speaking of the anointing of Christ. And why is it that that, that Christ is exalted? Well, go back to that foaming cup of wine for a second. What is it that, that Christ says? He says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you. Christ is exalted because he drained the cup down to the dregs. Every last drop of God's wrath upon the cross, Christ took the fullness of God's wrath on behalf of his people. And Christ is exalted. So why do we have no room for boasting in anything? We are exalted in Christ, and our horn is lifted up because his horn is lifted up. We are righteous because of his righteousness. And if we're not in Christ, we we can't claim any righteousness. So this excludes any boasting that we could ever have because any exaltation comes from God and it's because we're in Christ and in Christ alone. So go back to verse 1. Our life is to be a life of praise for God has designed it. Whether it's according to what we would have planned or not, He has planned it. He is sovereign. He is upholding the pillars upon which the earth stands. And he is sovereign over all things. And he judges with equity in all things. And our exaltation is only because Christ is our exalted king. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our exalted king, our exalted Lord, exalted prophet, our exalted priest. We praise you for the work of Christ, the ongoing work of Christ on our behalf. We thank you for Christ's active obedience. Thank you for Christ's passive obedience on the cross. And we thank you for the joy of salvation that we have in him. Father, by your grace, may we be a humble people. By your grace, may we never be people that are boastful or arrogant, but we always recognize that whatever we have is from your good hand, and your hand is always good to your people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.